I'm reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. This is God's word. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. <clears throat> so I think this uh, verse gives me a great free, free pass this morning that I if my sermon's really bad, it's okay because I'm supposed to come to you not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. And that's kind of his job today. So I'm just going to leave it in his hands. <laughs> um, so morning, everyone. Um, I'm going to take a storytelling approach this morning. Um, probably two stories that you've heard before, about people you've heard before, but they're great stories. And who doesn't love a story? So the first one is about the wise man. Um, and he was, without a doubt, at that point in history, the smartest guy who, has, who had ever lived. I mean, if, if Einstein or Elon Musk were alive at the time, they really would have nothing on this guy. Um, he knew everything there was to know about science and nature. He was musical. He wrote many, many books. He made alliances with kings and leaders all over the world. And he actually got them to pay him tribute. He married a princess of the most powerful nation in the world. He built up the army of his nation to protect it from attack. And he created fleets of ships to trade with other countries. And anyone in the wise man's nation who uh, was a foreigner and might cause trouble, well, he put them to work on huge you know, capital works projects. So he got a lot more done, but he also kept them nice and tired and exhausted so they couldn't rebel or anything pesky like that. Um, and under his leadership, his country was not only the most prosperous nation in the world, but that, that nation themselves was the most prosperous it had ever been. And because everything was so peaceful and everyone was so contented, um, you know, he didn't have to worry about invasion and external conflict, but he also didn't have to worry about internal conflict because everyone was pretty happy with the way things were. So he was, he was a smart guy. I like to compare him to the story of another guy let's call him the foolish man he he started out quite foolish from a young age um once when he was a kid his parents and his relatives they left the town where they'd all been on holidays and he purposely stayed behind and they like couldn't find him for three days um when he was an adult he purposely left his great job and he decided to go and be an itinerant preacher with no income and you know wander around the countryside um, and most of the people who he asked to wander around with him, they were, you know, not super well educated, maybe not super smart. They liked to argue a lot. They were probably pretty annoying, actually. <clears throat> um, and the foolish man was always doing really crazy things like touching people who had horrible skin diseases. And of course, back in those days, you know, there was no medical treatment for this stuff. And if you touch people like this and you've got their leprosy or whatever, you know, you could have your toes and your fingers drop off. I mean, just not smart, just not smart. Um, he spent a lot of time in his life really annoying people in authority. Um, 
making them incredibly angry. Um, he didn't get married. There's a lot of nice girls he probably could have married. Uh, didn't have any kids to look after him in his old age when he retired from his fantastic itinerant preaching job. Um, yeah, he just, in the end, he was just so foolish that he got caught by the people he'd irritated for all those years. And he had plenty of opportunities to kind of get away, get out of that situation, but he didn't. So uh, they ended up torturing him and killing him. So um, that's our couple of stories. The first wise man is, of course, King Solomon. Um, been reading a lot about King Solomon the last few weeks, been reading through First Kings and Second Chronicles. It's actually one of the most heartbreaking stories in the Bible. It's kind of enough to make you want to slam your own head against a brick wall as you're listening to it. Um, you know, he was, he was the son of the man after God's own heart, King David. Um, he was given everything by God, wisdom, but also, you know, everything else in life he could ever want or ever need. Um, and his human wisdom said, you know, get chariots and horses, you know, build up your army so that Israel will be safe. But way back in Deuteronomy, before Israel was even, had even moved into Canaan, the promised land, God said, you know, when you get a king, don't let him build up, you know, chariots and horses and armies. Um, don't go back to Egypt and get those horses, you know, stay free. Um, and, you know, human wisdom of Solomon said, you know, make alliances with other nations, you know, marry their daughters, make sure that Israel's, you know, safe in the, in the area it's, it's in. Um, but God said, you know, way back in Deuteronomy, you know, hey, when, when you get a king, he mustn't marry heaps of people, you know, heaps of wives from other nations. Don't do that, you know. Otherwise they'll turn, you know, they'll turn the king's heart away from God. And human wisdom again said, you know, build up prosperity, build up wealth, you know, make, make, make me wealthy, make Israel wealthy. But, you know, God had said, hey, don't, don't accumulate huge amounts of wealth because, you know, then you won't look to me. So inside, Solomon was as dead as a doornail. Um, you know, in his fantastic human wisdom, he completely rejected the power of God, you know, God had basically said to, to Solomon what he said to the Apostle Paul a thousand years later, my grace is all you need, my power works best in weakness. But Solomon just didn't listen. So let's look back at the foolish man we are talking about earlier. Um, obviously, from the perspective of human wisdom, this is how some people see the story of Jesus, and yet he's the author and finisher of our faith. Um, First Corinthians says the message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But to we who are being saved, we know it's the very power of God. And Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. This foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans. And God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. So at the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus foolishly went into the desert for 40 days and nights with no food and no water. And um, he met the deceiver and he was fed by the very words that come from God's mouth, God's word. And that's how he um, defeated Satan. And the Gospel of Luke says that Jesus returns to Galilee filled with the Holy Spirit's power. And Jesus, the God man, went on to bring in the kingdom that Solomon could never, ever bring in with all his human wisdom because Jesus had the power of the Holy Spirit.
So one reason that the story of King Solomon makes me really sad is that I see myself. Um, you know, I haven't married 700 husbands recently, but, you know, I, I'm just sitting there scratching my head at how Solomon could be so stupid. And then I realised it was just little choices every day for him to reject the power of God and instead choose to grasp at human wisdom, which, you know, it's, it's illusorily something that we want. Um, but those little choices bit by bit to say, no, I won't, I won't rely on God's power. I won't rest my faith in God's power. I'll rest it on my human choices and my human strength. You know, one day you're buying a few horses from Egypt and then eventually you're building altars to Moloch, who was a Canaanite deity who demanded child sacrifice. And little choices every day not to rely on the power of God. But the story of King Jesus gives us joy because it means that we're redeemed. So um, now you and I have the choice every day to make little choices that mean we're letting go of relying on our own human wisdom and we're accepting the miracle-working power of God in us and flowing out of us every day. So I just want to take a couple of minutes to think about where am I, where are you, and where are we as a church um, resting our faith in our human wisdom instead of in God's power. So let's just pray um, just for a couple of minutes and ask God to show us and to forgive us and change us. I'm reading uh, 1 Corinthians 2, 10 to 16. Hopefully everyone can hear me. Yes? Yes, good. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. The person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the spirit. The person with the spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? but we have the mind of Christ. Lovely to see all your smiling faces on my little laptop here, the wonders of technology. Thanks, uh, Martin. Um, there's actually a lot in that. I'm gonna try and condense it down to one question and a bit of a focus to unpack. And bear in mind that what I'm gonna say is mostly speaking to myself. So please don't take offense if I'm going to add things that sound like you need to do something, but it mostly pointed at me. Uh, verse 14 said that the person without the spirit doesn't accept the things that come from the spirit of God, but considers them foolish, foolishness, and can't understand them because they're discerned only through the spirit. So one of the questions that Luke asked, uh, I guess, for, to consider is how can I, how can we stop and listen more to the spirit or be spirit-led. Um, you can see that that is an old radio. 
And it's got an old dial where you tune in to different stations. You should also be familiar with one of those. Is anybody not familiar with one of those? That's the remote control for your television. So what am I tuned into? What am I feeding my mind? What are we all being tuned into? What are we listening to? What are we reading? What are we following? I have a, an iPhone, which I hope to get back today with a new battery that has 164 apps on it. We're completely spoiled for choice. There is so much paying and clamoring for our attention that um, gives us different messages. And those messages are clamoring uh, in a battle for our hearts and minds. And it's actually a battle between my flesh, my sinful nature, and, the, and what God's spirit is telling us. So what, is, what should I be focusing on? What should I be feeding my brain uh, that is going to affect my thoughts, my desires, and my actions um, that uh, are going to be affecting the world around me? So the people I live with, the people I interact with, etc. So it's a battle. And on the one hand, we have the messages coming through these things that tell us to do certain things. But those things can be very bad for us. And some of the sinful things that we can see is just on any TV news bulletin. We see hatred, the outcomes of discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. These are easy things to fall into, easy things to do and be involved in. Temptation says that it's okay, we can handle this. We can work our way through and cope with what's going on around us or what we're involved in. But what I've heard recently is sin lies. Sin leads to death. Sin has consequences. Sin is ruthless. So we need to twist it around and be ruthless with sin. So there are, there are consequences and there are bad things, but there's also the good side, which God in his wisdom has explained in his word to us so that we can try and do, be different and with humility and his grace, not be caught up in these things that are, are, are clamoring and asking us to move into the ways of, of, of sin and, and destruction. Uh, the book of James says that each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after sin, sorry, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to what? Death. So that sounds like we don't want to go there. Are there some good things to focus on? Well, that's, that's where the spirit comes in, the spirit of tuning in to what God's got to say. There are fruits of the spirit. Now, these fruits are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. As a church, as a group, as a person, as an individual, as a community, I think we would all love to see a, a huge amount more of that in each of our lives and each of the lives around us of the fruits of the spirit. So how can we tune into the fruits of the spirit? How can we tune into the spirit and be more spirit led? 
it's it's tuning into Jesus. It's tuning into the words of God. It's getting to know what God thinks. It's getting to know how he expresses himself, how he works, how he thinks. So two ways to do this is either on your own or on my own through my Bible and reading it and becoming familiar with it. So to, to listen to it on, on your iPhone app, to, to read it, to be, become aware of what it's telling us, to explore it. It's actually an, it's, it's an adventure playground of, of amazing things to, to learn and to know. And also to try and unpack that with others, to, to live this journey of exploration of what God would have us know with other people. So to get to know them and get to know God. So in no particular order, how can you be ruthless with sin? How can you have the mind of Christ? You've heard of the armour of God. There are things and steps and understanding and being aware of what things that we can try and, and, and focus on. But we're going to fall over. And I know I'm going to fall over. So I have to, at some time, confess that I can't do this. I need, to, I need God's grace. I need to humbly accept that he's, he's got this better than I have and he can help me through some stuff. So a, a, a scattergun of thoughts there. I, I hope that something has sparked a, uh, an interest or a, a thought for you and can uh, at least help us to be thinking of this battle that we're in, that um, sin lies we need to be ruthless with sin so that we can hear the voice of God uh, and tune in to explore the Bible both on our own and with other people. And I would pray that we would ask God in humility to, to give us the grace um, to be able to work on that and, and, and step forward with him. Um, the mind of Christ. Wow, how, how, can we, how can we understand that at all? Two, two main commands he left us with are to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength and to love our neighbour as ourselves. That would be the, the, the take-home for me. So thank you for listening. The reading is 1 Corinthians 3, verses 5 to 11. What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through, who, through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labour. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Hi Church, I'm glad to be sharing with you today on the passage that was just read. Uh, I think it's a really great passage, one that cuts to the heart of what Christian discipleship and growth is all about. And in it, we get to see Paul giving advice to people looking to grow and to learn themselves and then advice to teachers, people looking to grow others as well. 
So starting from the beginning, why, why is this growth important? I guess we, we, we definitely see in the passage that Paul thinks it's important. He has some very strong views on it and what the Corinthians should be doing to, to, to change their ways and to get better at, at how they're approaching Christian growth. Um, and, I, and I guess Christian growth here is us looking to understand God's will for us and to change our behaviours so that we're able to act out that will better as time goes on. And I think the answer, really, to, to why is this growth important that is reflected in how Paul treats it, is that growth in Christian maturity is one of the few things that has eternal significance, uh, that, that will outlast our time on this earth. Because think, thinking about this topic, a C.S. Lewis quote comes to mind, and I'll paraphrase it here. So C.S. Lewis says, there's no such thing as a mere mortal. Companies, governments, wealth all of the kind of earthly things that we put so much value into will pass away and are just transient, fleeting things. And instead it's people who are immortal and it's people who we should be um, investing time into and and really seeing as the focus of, of our effort and our lives. And then I guess the quote then goes on to, to challenge us to think about why we don't, don't treat people in that way and then spend so much of our time focusing on other things. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, lost the trail, I thought. <laughs> now, I think this growth doesn't look like just a small group of super-Christians all looking to build each other up um, in isolation. And it doesn't look either like a crowd of people who know just enough to call themselves Christians focusing outwards to the point where they don't take time to build up themselves either. It should, look at, it should look like a whole congregation of disciples at different levels of maturity, looking to grow themselves in maturity, and also at the same time reaching out to others to help them to grow as well. So there's inwards focus and an outwards focus um, on, on everyone, which I think means that everyone should be looking to both learn themselves and be someone who helps to teach others, uh, recognise that everyone's at a different point along their Christian journey, and everyone can be helped by by anyone else to grow. And I guess the, the, the two questions that follow on, I think, that Paul's answering in the passage are, how, how, how do we approach growth as people looking to grow ourselves, as, as learners, and how do we help other people to grow as, as teachers, um, or as people encouraging growth? And I think Paul's strong answer to both, both of those questions is that it should be centred on Christ and founded on Christ. And I guess the way that works out for the two different way, different approaches, learning ourselves and growing others, does, I guess the implementation is a little bit different. So if we're approaching growth ourselves, centred on Christ, it should mean that we are discerning and really seeking to weigh up what we choose to learn, what we hear from others against what we know is true in Christ. And, and so that's testing things against the Bible, um, and and yeah, and I guess our, our, our understanding that we've already built up of Jesus and God's will. So we should be discerning, and we should also be eager, see, seeing this as something that is really important and does have eternal significance. Then when it comes to approaching um, Christian maturity in terms of helping to grow others, I think again, it's, we should start 
centered on Christ and with Christ as a focus. And that should help encourage us in, in trying to teach others because it's not just our own power, that, and it's not by our own power that we are helping to grow others. As we see in the passage, it's, it's not Paul growing everyone. It's Paul as God's agent, and it's God working to grow everyone through Paul. So, so we can be confident in our own weakness, in that God is helping to guide us, and we can trust that God is, is the one who's enabling us to help to teach others. And that should also mean that we should approach Christian teaching without an ego, and without much thought for ourselves at all. It, it should be focused on helping to direct others to Christ. Um, yeah, with, without any, any focus on ourselves because we are we aren't the focus um and yeah we're not the ones ultimately we're helping people to grow that's that's god's work and i guess that's the thing that the corinthians had got gotten so wrong getting misdirected by following the teachers that came along so then what does this look like in practice in, in day to day how, how do we seek to learn and seek to grow and i guess my analogies here come come from time spent at uni and then at school before that where you learn from lectures one person talking to a large group which sounds a bit familiar in terms of what Luke does on Sundays um, <clears throat> and then also then say tutorials where it's smaller groups working together to unpack a topic and to learn and to test ideas against each other or groups one-on-one -on -one, if I'm working on a with a, maybe one or, one or two other people on an assignment you work together and you have more time to focus on just discussing um, things between yourselves or then just by myself if you're learning um, just through reading or um, or doing doing tests and things and I think ways that we can learn as Christians kind of mirror some of those things some of those analogies so we can learn by reading the Bible one-to-one -one. sorry we can learn by reading the Bible ourselves and spending time alone with scripture, meditating on scripture. We can learn by meeting up with others just one-on-one -on -one to have a have, um, really meaningful conversation about both our lives and challenging how we live out our lives. And again, learning, learning from the Bible and learning about Jesus. Uh, and then larger groups again into Bible studies and life groups, um, which again gives the opportunity to test your ideas against other people's and to grow as a community and be corrected um, as a community, but then having that benefit out to a wider group. And then there's things like our Sunday celebrations where we're learning a lot more as receivers of information rather than being a two-way conversation until after the service where hopefully we still do get that opportunity. Um, yeah, so I guess that's, that's my two cents. Um, I hope to see you all next week. Um, I'm going to be reading from 1 Corinthians uh, verse 3, 18 to 4, 1. Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standard of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world of life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. This, is, this then 
is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Hey everyone. Um, so, what do you think of when you imagine a servant? Is it someone who is forced to do hard labour, a bit more like a slave, or someone who just gets on and does the job because it needs to be done? They might grumble away as they do it, grumpy that no one is helping them. Or is it someone who works with a smile on their face, bringing joy to those around them, building others up with all their actions pointing towards Jesus, whatever their role might be? So, this passage kind of makes my brain go, huh? What on earth is Paul talking about? It took me a while to unpack it and understand what he's actually trying to say. And I'm sure it's not just me. But Paul is actually talking about this servant-heartedness and the mindset we should have about our leaders, who are also servants. He starts off continuing his thoughts about wisdom and foolishness, which we've explored over the last few weeks. He then goes on in verse 21 to talk about human leaders. He tells us not to boast about how great our leaders are. We shouldn't place someone on a pedestal above the rest because we've all been given the same gift from God. We are all equal. Instead, we should regard our leaders as servants of Christ. I really enjoy learning and I was really interested to find out more about the original Greek that this book was written in. In the New Testament, there are several different words used to describe a servant. Here, the word that Paul uses for servant is hyperitas, or however you pronounce it which describes a subordinate servant functioning as a free man. He doesn't use the more common New Testament word for a servant, doulos, which is a common slave. Hyperitas literally means an under rower, like a rower on a big gully ship. It's someone who follows directions without hesitation and who reports only to the person ranked above him. In the case that Paul's writing in, this is God. If we are all called to be servants, then we all report to God, not to each other. It is a team effort, not one person doing everything. We're advancing God's agenda, not our own. The other key thing that I want to point out in this passage is humility, which comes out in verse 1 of chapter 4. How humble do you reckon Paul was? He's one of the biggest names in the Bible who brought hundreds of people to faith. And yet he says, I'm just a servant. Don't follow me follow Christ. We are all saved through Christ. Paul or no one, no one else can save you. The message version puts it like this. Don't imagine us leaders to be something we aren't. <clears throat> we are servants of Christ, not his masters. We are guides into God's divine secrets, not security guards posted to protect them. It requires humility to disregard the world's wisdom and the world's culture and to be a disciple of Jesus. <coughs> In many cases, we are more excited about being with the influential and famous of this world than being with God. But God calls us to be humble and to follow him above all and not the ways of this world. In Matthew 23, it says, The teachers of religious law and the Pharisees don't practice what they teach. They crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. Everything they do is for show. On their arms, they wear extra wide prayer boxes with scripture verses inside. And they wear robes with extra long tassels. And they love to sit at the head table at banquets and the seats of honour in the synagogues. They love to receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi. Don't let anyone call you rabbi, for you have only one teacher and all of you are equal as brothers and sisters. 
The greatest among you must be a servant, but those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So what does this mean for us? Do you think you're some great leader who can do it all? Or do you have the humility to point to Jesus in all things? Are you able to serve others without wanting recognition for what you do? Yes, it's great and affirming to be acknowledged, but if what we do doesn't further the kingdom of God, then what's the point? Can you have the humility to point to Jesus in all things? To love your neighbour as yourself? To serve your brothers and sisters in the little things as well as the big? Being a servant of God shouldn't just be the next thing on our checklist that we need to do as a Christian. By reading, done today, tick. Pray today, tick. Served at church this week, tick. Serving and praying and reading the Bible should actually be our way of life. When we are humble and trusting God, he doesn't leave us to fend for ourselves. God is our ultimate provider and father. He cares for us and loves it when we care for others too. I urge you to pray that God would humble you so that you can be servant-hearted in all your actions.